Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together we research and break down complex issues facing our society, and we bring you those breakdowns every other week. We promise to bring you honest analysis backed by research, and maybe a little humor, though a lot of the things we cover are pretty heavy topics. We recommend getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. This time, we're capping off our series on systemic racism by addressing arguments against the idea that systemic racism is, in fact, a thing. We'll look at some of the counter theories presented by those who stand in opposition. If you haven't yet, we encourage you to listen to parts one through four of this series, where we discuss exactly what systemic racism is and what it isn't and what we consider to be significant evidence that systemic racism exists in many facets of American society. However, if you'd rather just start here, we understand. We'll cover how we're defining systemic racism and give you some of the big picture takeaways from those episodes before we jump into the research in opposition. Because we've made a commitment to present this podcast with as much transparency and as little bias as possible, we're going to acknowledge right now that we both believe that systemic racism is a real and significant problem in the United States. We are committed to presenting the counter theories and opposition as thoroughly as we did the research supporting the concept, but if our personal stance is an issue for you, we understand. Maybe we'll catch you in the next one. However, if you're willing to stick around, we hope to be able to facilitate healthy, fact-based conversation around a hot-button topic without letting our personal bias get in the way. So here's what this episode will look like. First, we'll remind you what we mean when we talk about systemic racism, and we'll also remind you what we don't mean. And then we'll get into some real-life feedback we were able to gather from our own social circles from folks who aren't convinced that systemic racism is a real problem. And then we'll examine some traditional political and academic opposition to the idea. As usual, we'll bring in as much research as we can to support the conversation. And then we'll close with some good news because Lord knows we need that this week. So <laughs> I, I can't make a joke. I literally have no joke for this. None. Yes. We, we need so much good news. So okay, okay. <clears throat> here goes nothing. Welcome to our fireside. Before we get into the criticisms of systemic racism, we feel like it's important to reiterate the definition we're using in this discussion. Remember that systemic racism stems from the root system. Systems are not people, and we're not talking about individual racist beliefs. We're talking about the underlying logic that determines how societal systems interact with people of color in given situations. On your phone, the system is the architecture that determines what happens when you touch certain buttons or enter certain commands. The system doesn't have a conscious or real decision-making capability. It only does what it was built to do, despite the conversational nature of Google Assistant and Siri. Social scientists believe that this is how systemic racism works. Remember, our country was built from explicitly racist foundations, and from those explicit foundations we grew, and to use a definition that we like, 
we've ended up with a system of policies, practices, and procedures that work better for white people than for people of color, often unintentionally. All signs point to it being a cumulative effect. Dr. Tricia Rose, who is the director of the Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity in America, explains that the concept of systemic racism refers very specifically to the ways that forms of discrimination in the past or the present work together in intersecting ways to produce a systemic effect overall. I want to stress here that systemic racism is not Ku Klux Klan. It's not Nazis. It's not laws written to say that black people can't do this and white people can do that. That is not systemic racism. That is overt racism. We talk about that a lot in our earlier episodes on this topic. In case you were listening to this first, if you are coming into this with the idea that systemic racism is those things, no, that is not it. <laughs> that is not it. That ain't it. <laughs> in preparation for this episode, we each took to our own social media platforms to ask the people we know whether they believed systemic racism was real and what criticisms or alternate ideas they would present if they did believe that, if they did believe systemic racism wasn't the explanation, what did explain it. Overwhelmingly, the folks who responded shared the same viewpoints we do that systemic racism is real and is a concern in American society, which is great, honestly. It also tracks with national polling, which has shown that more Americans than ever before believe this is an issue. So that's nice. However, there were a few that expressed doubt, and even a few that offered an explanation for their viewpoints, and we are very grateful to them. One responded, Racism exists and will always exist because regardless of laws and rules, some people choose to ignore them. Same thing with having strict gun laws like Chicago. Criminals don't care about rules. I don't believe there is systemic racism and can't quite figure out why this is a huge topic now. I believe everything is being politicized because of the Democrats' pure hate for our president. Again, racism exists, and it's a horrible thing, but it's not as bad as the media wants everyone to believe. End quote. End quote here. I'm just going to make this clear for future people. That was not my words. I was just using their quote and they used I. Exactly. Uh, same deal for all these quotes that we're getting ready to present. Um, another respondent said, The conversations that I've had with Anglo folks who are more skeptical about this topic go something like, Show me any law that's racist today. There aren't any or else they would be challenged in court. Then, if you point to one, especially in the area of the criminal justice system, the argument becomes, well, you can't prove the intent is racist. And since it's hard to hash out the heart position of individual lawmakers, and because legal differences are just so vast geographically and topically, the argument turns circular and then both sides just get emboldened. I do believe some of the areas of systemic problems, to keep them more general, are tied to wealth and resources and not just race, but at scale, those problems, like educational funding and criminal justice practices, seem to impact minority communities more acutely. And so to me, it's not a big leap to refer to them as systemic racism, but some have a major problem making that leap. Which, I mean, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And it, you'll see as we go through the topics later, that really reflects the research that we found as well. 
And then one more respondent said, first and foremost, all races can be racist. Power has nothing to do with racism. It's about the value of a person or persons. Racism is the belief that your race is superior to others. Because of the social redefinition, we've gotten away from that. Now, you're a racist if you have a prejudice or presupposition because of someone's race. As for systemic racism, you must first assume that people make decisions deliberately to damage those of other races. Many times, decisions have been made to keep poor people poor and rich people rich, like in the redlining laws, of which the effects are very apparent in our home city. This person lives in the same city that I do. There may have been some people who were racist in their intentions and decisions, but to say that the system is bent eliminates so many different variables, namely personal responsibility and individual prejudice. A person may not get a job or a promotion because they are black, but they also may not just because they're not qualified. It also may be a lack of interpersonal skills. And these answers, oh, sorry. It also may no, be a no, lack no. of interpersonal no. skills. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Oh man, that one. That one. This one's hard to read. Yeah. Yeah, it's so like going through this one. It's like not to again not to to attack the person who said it because that's not the goal here. It's just so close. It's so close to understanding what what systemic racism actually is, and then it takes the effects of systemic racism and lays the blame there. It's kind of like saying. You know, like instead of saying I have a flu, it's like saying, well, I have an achy body and a headache. And it's like, well, why do you have those things? Why do they exist? Why do we have uh, a difference in what a difference of opinion in what good interpersonal skills are? Right. Why do we have a, a, a difference in opinion about what causes rich people to stay rich and poor people to stay poor and right. how those effects impact people. It's just, you're so close. You're well, so and there's, close. there's such a, a strong misunderstanding in the last part of that sentence too. The idea that personal responsibility and individual prejudice and systemic racism can't exist in the same space. Um, right. It is really true that there is so much intersection of all of these variables. Yes. Personal responsibility is a significant part of this. Individual prejudice has been, and in some cases still is, a significant part of this. But also, the systems are a significant part of this. Um, And so like you were saying, it's super duper duper close, but it just stops short of the point at which we can acknowledge that these systems, because of their foundation, inherently operate in a way that is more beneficial to white folks than it is to people of color. Yeah. And I want to, I just want to comment on something. They have this sentence in here that made me pull my hair out and you almost laughed because I reacted and you can see me, but the sentence, now you are racist if you have a prejudice or presupposition because of someone's race. Yeah. No, like that is literally the definition of individual racism. <laughs> yes. That's racism. Like, right. Yes. You got it. You're right. That's not a redefinition at all. No. And I, I feel like because I know this person, I feel like the point that he was trying to make is that that we're all preconditioned to make judgments and suppositions based on the context that we find ourselves in. Um, And so as we've covered in detail, we know that there have been many social circumstances, media circumstances, conditionalities that have formed a a public 
popular opinion of people of different races. And so I understand the point that he's trying to make is, look, we all make snap judgments. Mm, okay. And making a snap judgment doesn't automatically make me a racist, which is a very pejorative term in our culture right, right now. But I, I would go as far as to say, yes, we all have presuppositions and we all make snap judgments. But the difference between someone who holds racist beliefs and who does not hold racist beliefs is the ability to identify, assess, and reevaluate those judgments. Right. You've got to take I it see. that one step further. Okay. In the vacuum, that sta- that sentence just like, I was, I was like, what are you trying to say? That makes way more sense. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, it we also... We all have knee-jerk stuff. We talked about it, actually. Those, yeah. Those biases, yeah. But this is okay. also a perfect example of why it's so difficult to have these conversations. Because on social media, somebody will be thinking all of the things that I said and write a sentence like, now you're racist if you have a prejudice or presupposition because of someone's race. For them, it carries all of the weight of their context and intent. For someone else just reading it, they have the same reaction that you and I have. Yes, that is the definition of what makes you a racist person. If you're out there listening and you are trying to have these conversations, especially on social media or in a context where full communication and the ability to communicate all of your intent is difficult, uh, read, reread, have someone else read, right? Really make the intention to have clear communication over quick communication. Yeah. Because that's that's a huge obstacle to being able to have these conversations. Actually, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast is because both of us would and sometimes still do write these essays on Facebook and they either get misinterpreted or we misinterpret the intent of somebody responding. And it's just so hard to have meaningful conversation that's strictly text based. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. We're running into that here. That's why we have a podcast. We can explain stuff now. And Um, emojis don't always help. Yeah. Yeah. The tone and inflection carry a lot of information that words themselves don't. Anyway, sorry, rabbit trail. Yeah, Moving on. no. So basically, all of these answers line up with the themes that we've seen in our research from the folks who don't agree that systemic racism is a, is a significant issue in our country. So uh, those responses fit very, very well with the themes that we're going to talk about today. Right. Um, as we were researching this episode we came across several themes of opposition to the concept of systemic racism. So we'll go through them in depth. Here is the the, uh, outline, the high level here. Um, First and foremost, there is a fundamental misunderstanding of the concept of systemic racism. Uh, Then there's this idea that America is a meritocracy. You get what you earn. There's also... Systemic racism is a narrative created and supported by the media. Another theme we found was racism is perpetuated by individual bad apples, not a system. And then finally, the issue is socioeconomic, not racial. It is interesting, though, because folks folks don't seem to fall into one group. You don't just think there's bad apples or that it's a meritocracy, right? It's usually people think some combination of all of these. So 
we'll be discussing comments from one U.S. senator later on who, in the same thought, expressed a fundamental misunderstanding of systemic racism and advocated for the individual bad apple approach to racism in the criminal justice system. Those two go hand in hand all the time. Yeah. Let's talk about what we mean by this fundamental misunderstanding of the concept of racism really quick. Right. Okay. So the most foundational issue that I noted when I was doing this research and in talking to people in my own social circle was how many arguments against systemic racism are centered on just a wrong definition. In the comments above, at least two of the respondents leaned heavily on the individual definition of racism. And it, People do that either by a complete misunderstanding of what people are talking about. Maybe they just cue in on the word racism and they leave out the idea of the system. Um, or just by willful rejection of the idea of systemic racism. Representative Scott Perry from Pennsylvania made this logical misstep in a conversation about systemic racism recently. He said, what is systemic? That means there's a system of. That's a fair point, yes. If there's a system, someone had to create that system still at the right track. But then he says, someone is operating and nurturing the system to keep it going. I don't know who in our country is doing that. And then later in that same statement, he said, that belies the fact that we had a war among the United States over that issue to cleanse our country of that issue. So he starts with a, a really solid understanding of where things are headed. There's a system of racist policies and practices and someone had to create that system absolutely true when a lot of americans america's foundational institutions were created laws were explicitly racist but then he continues with the idea that someone has to be knowingly nurturing the system to keep it going forward and then expresses a shock that people would assume that someone in our country is knowingly perpetuating racist systems so he switches from understanding what systemic means to redefining it as individual racism. Right. And then, of course, there's that whole misstep that thinking that having the Civil War cleansed the country of actual explicit racism. Um, I think he missed about 100 years of American history in there. Right. Or, you know, Klan rallies, Nazi marches, Charlottesville. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Dylan Roof. Come on. Um, yeah, exactly. So it, it's, that, it's that little shift, that fundamental misunderstanding that takes it from understanding that this is a process, this is a system, to assuming that individual racists must be perpetuating the system. Um, shifting the focus to the need for personal racist beliefs fundamentally changes that conversation. It changes the conversation around the whole issue. Senator Kamala Harris addressed that problem in response to statements made by her colleagues. And she said, I was disheartened to hear our colleagues suggest that when we discuss the fact of systemic racism, we're accusing people within the system and all people within the system of being racist. That kills the conversation and it actually insults the intelligence of the American people. It's an extreme and simplistic attempt to reject the seriousness of the issue. In the course of researching for this episode, I listened to a podcast featuring Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro, and it it's so frustrating listening to them. Nothing personal against their 
individual beings, right? But the way they argue is, we were talking about this, it is intentional. They are intelligent people. And Ben Shapiro especially is a, a decorated debater. He won at a very high level in many competitions, uh, from what I understand. Haven't followed him too closely. But they know how to make their points sound salient, make them sound really justified. And they do that by intentionally or, or not or otherwise, I don't want to assume malice where there is none, but by misdefining or, or framing a topic in a way that allows them to make their points and make their points sound very strong. So what I mean by that is in this episode in particular, Candace Owens starts out talking about how systemic racism can't be real because there are no laws that say black people can't do something anymore. It's a common argument that we both ran into when we were researching this that I see all the time. And as we've already laid out, it is a fundamental misunderstanding of what systemic racism is. Now, when you start from that framework, when you start from that foundation, you can then just move on out, just hammering the point over and over again that that's not, that that doesn't exist, and therefore, systemic racism doesn't exist. They have redefined, for the purposes of their argument, they have redefined what systemic racism is. And if you just took their arguments and listened to them, yeah, they're saying things that are Factual. I think that's one of Ben Shapiro's big, uh, big things. He likes facts and logic. (laughs) But something that we're striving to avoid here is presenting facts without context or presenting cherry-picked facts in a very isolated context. Um, And that is what I saw a lot of in this discussion, that we are going to take our facts... And we're only going to find the ones, we're going to conclusion shot, basically, for the ones that support our argument. And we're going to present those arguments as the the support for our wrong definition, for our misframed argument. And we're going to have the discussion, we're going to argue what we wish the argument was. And it just, ah, they have such large followings and it frustrates me that that they're doing that because it seems to me dishonest. I'm not calling them, like I said, I don't want to assume malice. I'm not calling them liars or or necessarily bad people. But the way this argument was presented was so very frustrating because it just seemed to exist in a vacuum that doesn't, isn't real. It's not the real world. They also practice the gish gallop, which is a dishonest debating tactic, if you ask me. Um, (laughs) I'm not going to talk about that too much. But it basically means they make so many claims that the respondent can't possibly answer them all. Uh, And you take up your partner's time, the person you're debating, you take up their time trying to address everything that you're claiming. I don't like that. Anyway, sorry. Getting back on track. That is an example of how that fundamental misunderstanding applies in the real world, how it spreads, and how it can lead to wrong conclusions based on real facts. So I think I've got a leaf blower in the background. I'm hoping that doesn't come through too loud. It should be done I mean, here in a second. I can totally hear that. See, 
Listeners, this is the joy of not having a dedicated podcasting studio where you can sit in a nice soundproof room. I'm still waiting on my podcasting pod. All right. I think that's low enough. The point being, it is, one, important to check check the assumptions you're making before you proceed forth with an argument. (laughs) Um, And two, as we've said over and over and over again in this series, it is entirely possible to have racist systems without any actors in the system having explicit racist beliefs. To reduce the definition to require those explicit beliefs rather than allowing for implicit biases brings the conversation to a logical dead end. You, there's nowhere to go from there. Exactly. It, it, and it leads very well into the next theme that we found and one of the most pervasive arguments against systemic racism And that centers on the idea that America is a place where hard work and determination are the only determinants of your success, the bootstrap mentality. The idea, and this this features very heavily in conservative political ideology, that you get what you earn. You need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps because if one person can do it, everybody can do it. This ideology is often referred to as meritocracy. And that term, interestingly, comes from a 1958 satire piece called The Rise of the Meritocracy, written by an English sociologist named Michael Young. The book is set in the year 2034. The far distant future. Right, the far, far distant future, which it was in 1958, but now... Right, yeah. I mean, as with all good dystopian stories, the closer we get to the year that it's set in, the more appropriate the themes become. (laughs) Oh, man. Dystopia is one of my favorite literary genres. Yeah. So it's set in 2034, and he coined that term the meritocracy, which he intended to describe sort of a new aristocracy based on expertise and test-taking instead of breeding and titles. The idea was that you, uh, the more you knew and the better you, you did on these aptitude tests inside this society, the better rank you had and the more access to resources and reward that you had. Uh, Interestingly, Mr. Young in 2001 wrote a letter to The Guardian, which is a UK news outlet, to share his disappointment that Tony Blair, who was prime minister at the time, alongside many politicians in the United States, had actually adopted that term, meritocracy, without the intended irony. (laughs) Yeah, that's typical. Eh, It doesn't matter where you're a politician. That that seems about right. Yeah, right. Oh, hey, here's this dark satire piece on this term, but hey, we really like that idea, so let's just make that a feature of our actual society. Uh, So the modern usage of that term meritocracy is used to refer to a system that allows people to achieve social status by virtue of their actual abilities and contributions rather than having it merely ascribed by an accident of birth. The system is driven largely by education, and social mobility becomes a reality as class origin is no longer a roadblock to a better life. In an open society like that, the individual is the prime mover and should be free to move ahead and realize his potentialities as much as he desires. So long story short, a meritocracy is a system that rewards merit, usually some combination of ability and effort, with success. And if that sounds more like common reality than sociological theory to you, there's a really good reason. 
Americans on the whole are more likely to believe that people are rewarded for their intelligence and skills and are less likely to believe that family wealth plays a key role in getting ahead. This strong commitment to merit meritocratic ideals can lead to suspicion of efforts that aim to support particular demographic groups. For example, initiatives designed to recruit or provide development opportunities to underrepresented groups often come under attack as reverse discrimination, heavily in quotes there. Uh, some companies even justify not having diversity policies by highlighting their commitment to meritocracy. I actually was given, um, I a website was brought to my attention recently, I'm stumbling because it, it bothers me so incredibly much, called unwokehr.com. And I went to this webpage knowing that we were getting ready to do this episode just to peruse and I actually had to close it because I was so frustrated at the messaging that was on that website. Their whole shtick is we're an HR service for companies who don't give a rip about political correctness, who don't care about meeting quotas for diversity, and who want the best candidate for the job in every situation. Uh, they they ramble on about how other companies are just trying to show how woke they are, but essentially they'll get theirs in the end when their commitment to diversity and hiring and differing perspectives basically bites them in the butt as they try to operate with less qualified candidates. It was super duper duper frustrating and disturbing to think that there's a need for a service like that, that there's demand out there. Uh, that companies are trying to prove how unwoke they are and how committed to a meritocracy they are. The idea is that if a company evaluates people based on their skills, abilities, and merit without any consideration of their gender, race, sexuality, etc., and managers are objective in their assessments, then there's no need for diversity policy. I just... In, yeah. I'm sorry. That frustrates me because... This company, Unwoke HR, they put effort into creating this, right? They put time, they put energy. They could have asked somewhere in there, why is this a thing right now? Yeah. And they didn't. They, they went from the assumption that it's a thing because of political correctness, because of uh, groupthink, or uh, I think one of the responses I got when I was asking about this was uh, collectivist drivel. Uh, oh, which, yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we're all very impressed. Uh, go drink your tea. Um, <laughs> it's just like, ah, why? Why didn't you at least ask? Why didn't you at least dev devote some of that energy to figuring out if if it is just nonsense? Yeah. Uh, it, sorry, it does brush me. It, well, and it bothers me that they're able to put out that sort of dog whistle, that salt lick. And the oh, companies is, yeah. ostensibly, right? I don't know their revenue situation. I don't know how many clients they have. But there are companies that are drawn to this because they feel frustrated and challenged by this push for greater diversity in the workplace and an acknowledgement that maybe meritocracy is not the most effective way to you to do HR for your company. And we'll get into that in some pretty significant detail in just a little bit. Yeah. But going back to what a meritocracy system looks like, 
in an article about quotas versus merit systems, one particular scholar provides a set of principles for what he considers to be the essence of a meritocracy, and that's a principle called distributive justice. So the tenets of that are, first, that merit should be the sole determinant of an unequal share. So if people are not going to get all the same thing, any distribution of above and beyond should be based on merit. The second tenet is that the test of merit should be individual talent. The third, the most talented should receive a greater share of society's rewards than the less talented. That everyone should have an equal chance to display his or her talent or lack thereof. And that social inequality, like deference or income or class standing, is actually just when it's the outcome of the previously stated principles. That's the most crucial one, I think, in understanding the idea of a meritocracy as a defense against the idea of systemic racism. The idea there is that I don't have to do anything to rectify social inequality, inequity, because it's just. Right. People didn't work hard enough. They didn't have enough talent, and therefore they don't have as much. And I have no compulsion to correct that because it is a just system. Right. The The corollary to that would be the people who do need to work would be the people at the bottom. Right. Like if they don't want to be at the bottom, they need to work harder. Um, which, if this sounds familiar, if this sounds <laughs> like what you, American listener, was always taught, um, that's because you have been taught that. It's been packaged to you as the American dream. Um, those who work hardest deserve the greatest share of success. It's why American culture long eschewed the dynasties of inherited wealth and valued the, the quote-unquote self-made millionaire. But research demonstrates that there are some substantial obstacles to the lived experience that America is actually a meritocracy. So first, <laughs> there's a fundamental, this, sound, this is a common refrain, a right. fundamental definitional issue. What exactly is merit? So merit is, is inherently uh, an intangible quality that can only be defined and determined contextually. Wealth, lineage, age, gender, economic efficiency, artistry, technical knowledge, speed, strength, so on and so forth, they can all be considered merit depending on the circumstance. Generally, in American society, merit is viewed as something that should be rewarded in a good way. It is perhaps most often generally associated with talent, um, skill, intelligence, ability, effort, the, my favorite buzzword from this election, grit. Oh, um, yeah. Hustle and grind. Yeah. Another leading scholar on the subject, and when we say that, it's because we're pulling from a lot of sources, and these sources frequently have a lot of names in them. We yes. don't want to bog our listeners down with a bunch of names. If you want to know our sources, we publish them. Um, they go up on our, on our Facebook page and our website or at Podbean on the, the podcast website. So you can find these sources. You can get those names yourself. So they're not just anonymous sources, which I know a lot of people have problems with. Right. They're so not anonymous. There's just so many names. Yeah. So another leading scholar on the subject notes that merit is an institutional construct 
and that it does not, and indeed it cannot, exist outside the institutions that use it. So battles over merit reflect larger struggles amongst status groups, and the definition of merit always bears the imprint of the distribution of power in the larger society. So basically, what that, what that boils down to, because that's a lot, is that the people in charge determine <laughs> what merit is. They determine what is valued. They determine what are important features. Keep that in mind. We've talked about this kind of normativity before. It's the idea that the most valuable or meritorious traits are those that reflect the characteristics of the dominant group. And although most Americans agree that getting ahead depends on meritocratic elements like hard work, um, that belief varies in strength across demographics. There's a lot of disagreement about the importance of non meritocratic elements such as family wealth, uh, a race, where you were born. Young upper-class whites are most likely to see the U.S. as a place where meritocratic elements rule. Older, lower-class minorities, in contrast, are most likely to believe that non-meritocratic elements dominate. Which should in and of itself be the exception that proves the rule here. Like the idea that young upper class white people in America are the most likely to see their status as a result of their individual efforts. But the fact that lower class people of color are more likely to believe that your ability to get ahead has nothing to do with how hard you work is super reflective of the historical elements that we're talking about here. The idea that you had advantage if you were upper class and white, and you had a significant disadvantage if you were lower class and of color. Yeah. And I think, honestly, the, the, those views, <laughs> they're probably actually true. If you are rich, society does become much more meritocratic because yeah. your basic needs are taken care of. And when it's rich person A versus rich person B to get into, you know, job A or whatever, what will differentiate them is going to be the work that they did. Things like how did they volunteer? What were they, what projects were they part of? Um, I mean, what groups are they involved in? Things that having your basic needs taken care of allows you to take part in these other extracurricular things. Exactly. It's the idea that when you when you have the ability to operate, like you said, beyond meeting your basic need, you can do much more and try much harder. But when a significant amount of your energy and time is consumed in meeting your basic needs, you don't have time for that kind of extracurricular, extracurricular meritocratic function. And then aside from these definitional troubles, which should be enough to rule this out, but we're going to keep going. There's also a ton of research that suggests that these principles are not played out the way they're idealized in American culture. It's a great thought, but it's easier said than done. Researchers note that in a meritocracy, social status or success becomes increasingly dependent on an individual's level of education, 
Colleges and universities that once reflected the status system of society are now the gatekeepers of class position, and access to them determines the future stratification of society. In the 1960s, more people were attending college than ever before. And at the same time, new leaders in higher education opened up their institutions' admissions processes to, quote, scrappier kids with impressive test scores. Companies suddenly had a much more educated workforce to draw on, creating something of a, a skills revolution, like an arms race, in which education became highly valued and therefore highly competitive. And that tremendous expansion of higher education in the United States elevated the important role that higher education plays in social and economic matters. But there's a really significant problem here. One of the most foundational elements of a meritocracy ideal in America is that opportunity is equal. In a system of distribution based on merit, equality of opportunity is absolutely imperative. Any individual with the relevant qualifications, though some would argue that any individual at all, must be given an equal chance to demonstrate their talent in the competition for rewards. And yet, we know that many variables other than individual merit, like wealth, race, ethnicity, social class, high school context, parent and family involvement, location, and financial aid, have been found to structure and constrain participation in higher education. So again, fundamentally, if the base of a meritocratic society comes through education, if your opportunity to move and grow and position yourself in that society comes from your ability to get the education that gives you the chance to move forward, and still very many people in the United States don't have access to that base foundation, there is not at all an equal playing field of access to one of the greatest determinants of success in a meritocratic society. An example that helped me kind of understand this uh, higher level philosophy <laughs> is that, and you've probably heard it if you're listening to this podcast, but the idea of a foot race. If you have, for the sake of this ex example, let's put a pot of money at the, at the finish line. And as soon as you cross the finish line, you can grab as much of that money as you can carry. Literally, you, there's no limit. You can take as much as you want, but you have to cross the finish line first. All things being equal, if everybody started at the, the same starting line, then you would have the equality of opportunity that, that you're talking about here. But for some people in society, some people start at a uh, starting line that's twice as far back as other people, right? And sometimes the people that start twice as far back still make it to the finish line before the people who started at the normal starting line that's closer. And they still get a lot of that money that's in the pot. And they still do better than the people at the normal starting line. But that doesn't negate the fact that in order to cross the finish line, they still had to work twice as hard. They had to overcome twice as many obstacles, if you will, to, to reach that finish line. So Exactly. If we are going to operate as a meritocracy, we have to ensure... Not, we have to ensure that the starting line is the same for everybody. But there's even more to it than that. Um, we'll get to that here in a second. I want to double back before we, <laughs> before we completely lose the thread. <laughs> Research also clearly demonstrates that the principles of meritocracy 
are not well employed in the corporate space, even when they are clearly expressed as the ideal. One study examined almost 9,000 employees who worked as support staff at a large service sector company that espoused commitment to diversity and had implemented a merit-driven compensation system to equitably reward high-level performance. But the study's analysis revealed that women, ethnic minorities, and non-U.S.-born employees received a smaller increase in compensation compared with white men, despite holding the same jobs, working the same units, having the same supervisors, the same human capital, and most importantly, receiving the same performance score. So controlling for every factor except race and gender. <laughs> the most purely meritocratic system you could have. White men still had an advantage. Why? It's a good question. This finding is not alone. It was replicated by other studies and lab experiments, and each experiment had the same outcome. When a company's core values emphasized meritocratic values, those in managerial positions awarded a larger monetary reward to the male employee than to an equally performing female employee. The researchers responsible for this work termed their counterintuitive re result the paradox of meritocracy. We can also use employment and earning data sorted by education level to determine the extent to which educational merit influences earning potential across races. What we see from the National Center for Education Statistics is that in 2016, median annual earnings of full-time workers ages 25 to 34 differed by race and ethnicity at most levels of educational attainment. The gaps are most noticeable for those without a high school diploma or, or equivalent. The median earnings of white full-time workers who had not completed high school uh, were $29,100 and were higher than the median earnings of their Hispanic peers at $25,000. And both of those racial groups, or ethnic groups, had higher median earnings than black full-time workers at $21,400. But the patterns hold consistent even when workers had a college degree. Among those with a bachelor's or higher degree, Asian full-time workers had a higher median earning at $69,100 than did their white peers at $54,700, and median earnings for both racial ethnic groups were higher than those of their black peers who earned $49,400 on average, and Hispanic peers who earned $49,300 on average. Right, so what we're seeing here to use that race example is that not only for some people is the, is the, the starting line further back, but there are different pots of money at the end of each lane. So you're racing at different lengths to try to get to different end results. There's not even the same pot of money for everybody. It's really interesting to me that Asian full-time workers with college degrees had higher median earnings. Yeah, That would be really interesting to dig into a little bit. Mm -hmm. And at some point, we probably should explore the idea of the model minority myth. Because... Oh, as much as we talk about systemic racism and how it impacts Native Americans and Black Americans and Hispanic Americans, there's almost a flip side when you look at the model minority and how that impacts but also puts pressure and stereotypes on 
Asian Americans. Right. So a lot of these days, a lot of our research actually doesn't even <laughs> it doesn't mention Asian minorities because it is looking at African American uh, or Hispanic. Uh, ethnic groups and those that do typically find what we saw here is that either they're performing or receiving benefits above white peers or um, at the same level as I thought I thought that was really really interesting Um, so yeah I would love to talk about that at some point and and see where that research leads us so let's take a little bit of a bunny trail here into something called colorblind theory or colorblindness And it dovetails into that concept of a meritocracy. It dovetails perfectly into the concept that America is a meritocracy. The idea is that in the wake of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, America has become a colorblind society where how individuals and groups are treated by systems is centered on their efforts, behaviors, and achievement, and even character, rather than their race or ethnicity. It's the belief that the ultimate goal in ending racial discrimination is best served by interacting with every individual on the content of their own character. The theory has two main features. The first one is a belief in American society's presentation of equal opportunity for all, regardless of race. And secondly, there's a suggestion that pervasive individual deficiencies account for the problems of entire social groups. Yeah, it just, it fits right perfectly into the idea of a meritocracy. At its core, colorblindness implies that race doesn't actually make a difference in the life experiences of someone living in the United States. Instead, it posits that the legal, political, and economic liberalism throughout American history, and especially since the Civil Rights Movement, has, quote, affirmed the impartial and universalistic treatment of individuals and led to an emphasis on individual merit as defined by natural abilities, talents, and accomplishments. Colorblind theory argues that we can promote equality and best manage diversity if we completely ignore and avoid consideration of irrelevant group categories like race. Instead, the theory argues that racial harmony can best be achieved when we focus on the uniqueness of each individual and the fundamental human qualities that all people share. The logic behind this system is fairly simple. If you don't see the differences between groups, then there can be no basis for discrimination, prejudice, or stereotyping of others. Institutionally, this colorblind theory came into the public eye during the Plessy v. Ferguson case, when U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Harland argued that the U.S. Constitution was colorblind and did not tolerate classes among its citizens. And then the concept gained global attention after Dr. King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech, where colorblindness was promoted as a means to achieving equality between African Americans and white Americans, although that's definitely an oversimplification, over, that's definitely an oversimplification of Dr. King's multifaceted approach to racial equity. Uh, he wasn't promoting that as a means to an end, rather than an indicator that we will have accomplished the goal where our children will be judged on the content of the character, not on the color of their skin. Despite the very noble origins of this ideology, right, it's a great idea, colorblindness soon began to take on a life of its own, and people started to use the ideology to argue against race-conscious policies because such policies were believed to disadvantage white people. 
it's a that reverse discrimination idea yeah. popping back up again. Yeah, yeah. And current research indicates that this colorblind approach can be both good and bad for intergroup or interrace relations. There are studies that show that when you prime individuals with the idea of colorblindness and endorse a colorblind ideology, that can reduce stereotyping and prejudice toward racial minority outgroups. This is most relevant when we're talking about our kids. If we raise our kids fundamentally with the idea of colorblindness, then they will be less likely to stereotype or have prejudice against other racial minority groups. But, on the other hand, studies reveal that colorblindness can be detrimental for minority groups in society when people construe that ideology as justification for the status quo by implying that if everyone is a unique individual, then any group's failure is the result of their own doing. For example, research has demonstrated that exposure to a colorblind mindset in American classrooms led elementary school children to be less likely to detect an overt instance of racial discrimination than teaching them from a value diversity mindset, which teaches them that every diverse group of people has value and that diversity in itself is valuable. Within organizations, white Americans' endorsement of colorblindness negatively predicted racial minorities' psychological engagement within the organization. So in other words, in organizations where white employees heavily endorsed colorblind principles, employees of color were less likely to have a healthy level of psychological engagement. Relatedly, team leaders' endorsement of colorblind principles predicted minority distancing within the team and greater relationship conflict within the team. Just really like everything else we've been talking about, it's easier said than done. I wonder why that is. I have a theory. I have a theory that when a lot of people imagine colorblindness, what they actually imagine is a, a white normative culture, right? Right. Where everyone behaves like a white person. So especially in a corporate environment, if you are not, <laughs> if you are not a white person, if your culture and attitudes and behaviors are different than that white normative definition, you'll probably just turn off. You'll just disengage because it's easier than trying to f defend the fact that you're not white because you're yeah. not acting white. Exactly. It, that, it's that insidious area of normativity because if I can, if I can attribute my aversion to the way that you behave or speak or dress if I can attribute that to the cultural difference or to just your behavior difference, then again, I'm not a racist, almost one of the most disliked pejorative terms in American culture today. I'm not a racist. I just don't like the way you're acting. Missing yeah. the point. Totally missing the point. <laughs> totally missing the point. <laughs> okay, back on track with meritocracy. That's not to say that the idea of a colorblind meritocracy can't actually work. There's been a lot of research that shows that when it's applied correctly, it can. But the key is acknowledgement of and control for bias. One study examined whether female musicians, like instrumental musicians, were more likely to be advanced or hired with the use of blind auditions. This one was really interesting to me. Mm. What researchers did was they obscured the auditioning musician with a screen throughout the audition process. And what they found was that the screen increased by 50% the probability that a woman would be advanced out of certain preliminary rounds of that audition process. 
and the screen also enhanced by several fold the likelihood that a female contestant would be the winner in the final round. So when the audition panel could not see the musician, they were 50% more likely to advance a woman in the audition rounds. Hmm. It's like the voice, right? The voice is an interesting concept for a reason. When we take out all of our visual judgments and presuppositions, the outcomes change significantly. And then modeled after that research, showing that blind auditions blocked these biased evaluations, a company called Gap Jumpers developed an online technology platform that enables hiring managers to hold blind audition challenges for potential employees. This sounds like what unwoke HR should actually be. Right. Not unwoke, right? Not playing on that idea that that screw diversity quotas, but really playing on the idea of an equal platform. In these challenges, job applicants are given many assignments that are designed to assess that applicant for the specific skills required for that open position. All of, all of the submissions are evaluated and ranked, and the top performing submissions are then reviewed by the hiring manager who selects candidates to bring in to interview without seeing any of their identifying details. And the results are really, really interesting. About 60% of the top talent identified through Gap Jumper's blind audition process comes from underrepresented backgrounds. In the story reported by The Atlantic, one social psychologist working with Gap Jumpers on her doctoral research noted that the high percentage of underrepresented applicants that make it through the skills first screening process is often met with suspicion. In her work, she observed that hiring managers tended to be surprised that the top performing submissions they pick often come from applicants without an elite education or training or experience. And this suggests that blind performance auditions are a powerful tool to manage bias and address the pervasive and incorrect assumption that an elite pedigree best predicts job performance. I mean, and, and to go back to that study with the 9,000 employees, Further on in that study, what they did was they presented those results to that company and they said, you say this, but this is what we're seeing. And because of that research, because that bias was brought out, the company was able to, in cooperation with those researchers, reevaluate their systems and actually accommodate for that bias so that now their meritocratic reward system actually functions equitably inside of the company. Hmm. That's interesting. I really wonder, we, we kind of slammed uh, Unwoke HR a couple of times right now. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, I, yeah. the name itself is irksome. I wonder, I wonder what their numbers are like. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they are truly, absolutely meritocratic. I wonder what their process is like because it might just be marketing, right? They might right. actually be doing something in a like this other company, like Gap Jumpers, and actually applying a truly meritocratic system where they don't get any identifying information before they make their recommendations. That would that would be interesting to look at for me. So if you work there and you're already mad at us and you want to prove us wrong, show us your data. <laughs> yeah, please. I, I do like what Gap Jumpers is doing. I like that that company worked to rectify the situation. I do have, however, a warning on meritocracy. 
even a perfectly meritocratic society would likely not be just. And it seems counterintuitive, especially based on what we've been talking about. Um, but I was listening to a really interesting interview between uh, Preet Bharara and Harvard philosophy professor Michael San- Sandel, I believe. <laughs> and um, they talk about this a lot because uh, Professor Sandel has a book coming out called The Tyranny of Merit. Uh, it comes out on Tuesday, the 15th. We're recording this on the 13th. So I was listening to this interview where they were, where the professor was discussing this book. And he makes the point in the book that meritocracy does not equal equity. For example, we talked about schools admitting people outside of their normal pool, right? These, these spunky kids with high test scores. Even though colleges have made this commitment to diversity and, and to getting these kids in from a wider variety of sources, at these Ivy League colleges, more students come from the wealthiest 1% of the United States than from the entire bottom half of the country. So affluent parents can afford to equip their children with more tools to compete effectively. But even if that were controlled, if a perfect meritocracy existed, which make no mistake, this would be an improvement, even if it existed, it wouldn't be enough to make it a perfectly just society. In a perfect meritocracy, a world with completely equal opportunity, everybody starting at the same starting line, everybody going for the same sized pot of money, um, nothing, nothing holding them back, right? Even in that race, who wins it? It's the fastest runner. Which we kind of ascribe that to, we, we take the, the metaphor and we say, well, the fastest runner is the person who works the hardest. But that's not real life. We know that some people are just fast. Look at, look at Usain Bolt. I seriously doubt in fact, I would be willing to bet a large sum of money that I don't have <laughs> that <laughs> he is the only runner who has worked as hard as he has, right? I guarantee you there is a runner out there who has actually worked harder than Usain Bolt, but is still not faster. <laughs> Why? Even against other Olympic runners with similar opportunities, with similar training programs, Mr. Bolt is the fastest. This is through no fault of the other runners. It's just Usain Bolt is the fastest person. That's just it. He was born with speed in his blood. He's just fast. He's just fast, right? It's in part because of his fortune, his luck, to be born with the talents the, the musculature, the, his nervous system, whatever it is that makes him the fastest, he was lucky to be born that way. And there's no escaping that. Another example, if we take talent out of this, if we take our innate skill that we're all born with in some area, let's look at LeBron James. He is, without question, a gifted athlete. He has worked incredibly hard. I am not going to undercut that. But he still benefits 
from his luck. He still benefits from being born in a society that values basketball. Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> as the professor says, there is somebody out there who can arm wrestle just as well as LeBron James can play basketball. But our society doesn't care about arm wrestlers. Right? We're not calibrated to value them the same way that we value a basketball player. And because of that, this hypothetical individual, whoever it is, is worse off for it than LeBron James. No fault of that individual's own. It's no fault of his that he was born into a society that doesn't care that he can arm wrestle in the gorilla. But he was. And because of that, his talent doesn't reap the rewards of somebody else who is equally talented in another field that is appreciated. All this to say, a meritocracy wouldn't be possible outside of an entirely homogenous society, which we all know is impossible. Not, there's no way everybody in any given society is going to be exactly the same with the exact same talents and the exact same um, starting line, everything like that. Right, it's we're jumping back happen. into dystopian territory again. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think they did this in Star Wars. <laughs> they're called the clones, and they're all the same. Uh, Star Wars people, I know that they are not all the same. I have watched the Clone Wars and read the books. I am also a nerd, but go with me here. The ideas presented in this interview and in the book, which again... I only know about what's in the book because of the interview. This isn't some hocus pocus that I'm making stuff up, I promise. It's, I'm, I'm just presenting them because a lot of people have this false idea of a meritocracy being the end goal. And personally, and I think if you followed my examples, you would also feel this way. I don't think it should be the end goal. It might make a great starting point, though. I'd like to do a whole episode on meritocracy. Uh, I, I, once yeah. this book comes out, I would love to read it. I'd love to do some more research and see how it's applied and if there's places that do it better and how it could work. But for now, suffice it to say, there's just not a lot of evidence to support the idea that our society is, in fact, a meritocracy. And that even if it were a strict meritocracy, probably isn't something we should aspire to. Fair point. That idea leaves a whole lot of people out, too. Yeah. Um, like, the idea of a strict meritocracy leaves out the elderly, the mm -hmm. handicapped or incapable, those with genetic conditions, mental health issues. Yeah. Right. I mean, not to get too personal, I have ADHD, and that really messed with me throughout my high school career my college career, I never, I, I suspected, but I never got diagnosed for it and I was never treated for it. And I worked my butt off and especially in my upper level college classes got crappy results in a lot of things simply because of a misfiring in <laughs> the chemicals in my brain. I have no control over that. It, it, it does quickly transition from meritocracy to uh, an ableist society, which is very, yeah. very dangerous. 
let's move on from this. I think we've we've <laughs> I think we've talked about this for like forty five minutes. Um, yeah, it, and I the reason we put so much emphasis on this one in particular, and the reason that we probably spent too much time discussing issues, problems with it, is because this is one of the most common ones that we saw. I think. Yeah. This idea that people are getting what they deserve in some way. And so we both wanted to, to really dig in on that one. Yeah, that, that idea is so ingrained in American culture and American society that it pops up in response to almost every discussion on systemic racism, no matter which institution we're talking about, whether that's education or housing and wealth or the criminal justice system or healthcare. Right. It pops up everywhere. If if people of color took better care of their health, they wouldn't experience such significant disparities. If kids in under-resourced schools would just try harder, if their parents would just participate more, they would have the same outcomes as kids from well-resourced schools. It pops up everywhere. Yeah. So it, it was really important to us to hit that particular point really hard. But I do think that we could probably move on now. I think our next... <laughs> Hit point is uh, the idea that systemic, the idea yeah. that systemic racism is not real, but is reflective of a narrative that's created and supported by the news media. The media, oh, the media. I wish that there was an enemy in life called the media that we could all hang our problems on because it would make life so much simpler. And right. unfortunately, there are a lot of people that believe that is true. Um. So, this narrative, I, it's best, I think the best example I found of it was from David Clark, who some of you might be familiar with. He's a former Fox News correspondent, former sheriff of Milwaukee County from 2002 to 2017, <laughs> former spokesman for America First Action, and former member, or maybe current member, I, I'm not sure what the standing on this organization is, um, of the We Build the Wall organization, um, which is problematic for a million reasons. Don't let that color what, <laughs> what I'm about to say. Sorry, that is my own bias coming out. Listeners, right, I, apologies. Yeah. If you could see our faces right now and the body positions that we're sitting in as we try to discuss some of these organizations, our bias would be so incredibly clear. Yeah, um, we're definitely but... benefiting from you guys only hearing our voice because everything else... We're trying. We're really trying. That's all I'm, I'm going right. to leave it there. In 2017, Mr. Clark wrote a uh, opinion piece for The Hill publication laying out the argument that systemic racism was media-driven. This is what he said. He said, The media love stories of race so much that they sprint to unfurl the breaking news banner before knowing the facts. It seems facts don't matter. Or, more precisely, facts are inconvenient if they can use the story as a political bludgeon to smear all conservatives and Republicans as racists. I'm not laughing. You're definitely laughing. The process works like this. First, liberal media outlets instantly parachute in to cover the story from the scene. Live coverage and interviews play on emotions, since the facts are murky at best. Anchors earnestly remind viewers race is an explosive issue in America. These 
news reports are followed by coverage of race hustlers calling for a national discussion on race. Provocateurs demand that all white Americans engage in self-flagellation, confess to false accusations of harboring racist feelings, and admit that America is racist to the core. Like Pavlov's dogs, many Republican politicians begin rushing to the nearest camera to flaunt their racial sensitivity. Should they not do this soon enough, the left will spin their delay into indisputable evidence that of the politicians' acceptance of racism. I'm ending the quote there. It goes on. I think you get the idea. Um, it is a media left-wing conspiracy to take down Republicans and conservatives. Already, as somebody who really hates conspiracy theories, <laughs> um, I, that's wrong. I love conspiracy theories as long as they remain... A conspiracy theory, but as somebody who, who who disapproves of any theory that automatically posts an entire people group in one position and an entire other group of people in another position and says they're all the same, this one leaves a bad taste in my mouth just right off the bat. I don't like it. The main thrust of the argument is that the media promulgates the theory of systemic racism in order to drive up discord and, of course, news consumption. In the above example, the speaker assumes that the intent is to undermine Republican conservative end goals, and that's generally what we see as the, as the, you know, the, the end goal for this theory, although there are other victims. He makes the claim that when a conservative inevitably fails to respond appropriately, the media pounces on the manufactured weakness to turn public sentiment against them. And that attitude is really reflective of the contentious relationship conservatives seem to have with the news media. Uh, this opinion piece, just as a reminder, is written in 2017. I think it's kind of funny that he says that conservatives will inevitably fail to respond correctly when there have been examples of conservatives taking a very sober and reasonable approach to some of these issues. Senators like John McCain wasn't perfect, but he tended to be a, a at least reasonable respondent to these sorts of things. Interestingly, uh, Mitt Romney has kind of come up as somebody who, still conservative, still not perfect, shows at least some credible responses that aren't all terrible. Just saying, that's a wild assumption that he is making that every conservative will fail to rise to the to the standard. Um, right. And like we were talking about earlier, this is that classic reframe and then prove the reframed point. So you take the question, does systemic racism exist? And the response is no, it's a conspiracy by the media to discredit conservatives and then all of the evidence points to conservative response and media coverage of conservative response specifically to police brutality in context to people of color. And so, first of all, this theory cannot at all be construed to answer for the question, does systemic racism exist? Right. Because it focuses directly on that one point. Yeah. However... 
However, and this is this is really important to note, there is a kernel of truth to the idea that media coverage can impact race relations, potentially negatively. Both white and African-American Democrat House members have virtually the same voting records on civil rights issues. Yet, the African-American incumbents are asked regularly to comment on civil rights, while white Democrats are rarely asked to respond on such matters. In 2002, a study took white undergraduate students and then compared their television consumption with their perceptions about race and the differences in socioeconomic success. The more television a respondent watched, the more likely they were to think that a black person's lack of socioeconomic status was the result of a lack of motivation and work ethic instead of a lack of job opportunities and other factors. And even these standard media practices may be problematic in developing these negative perceptions among people groups. A review of 429 stories related to criminal activity determined that of those cases, only 49% of black people were named in, associated with their, in association with their pictures, while 65% of the whites in those articles were named. And so that study hypothesized that when black individuals are not given a name to go along with their picture, it suggests that the visual representation can be assimilated to a larger, undifferentiated group. In this case, the stereotype of a dangerous black male. Uh, and that anonymous individual portrait exemplifies that stereotype. The name isn't important since the individually simply the name isn't important since the individual simply stands as a proxy for a familiar category of person outside of one's own group. Uh, we've talked about this, we talked about this significantly in our first episode, the difference between white individuals being recognized for their individual accomplishments, but also their individual um, crimes or negative character aspects versus people of color as a whole being represented for their valuable aspects and their negative aspects. Yeah. We often see that whites are more individually named and recognized and uh, African Americans especially are treated more as a group. As a, yeah, as a collective. I, uh, it is frustrating to me, especially to look at headlines where it will be John Smith kills man over whatever thing and that same headline under the same circumstances about a, a black man will literally say african-american man kills white guy and it's just like why why was it necessary to identify him by his race in the headline and not his name mm -hmm. and this is that's just a handful of examples of right. the harmful effect that media can have on race relations but people like Mr. Clark take this a step further and claim that this is intentional rather than just a side effect of subconscious or unexamined biases. And the data for that, that insidious behavior is, is really difficult to find. I think in this case, Occam's razor, the idea that the simplest answer is likely to be the most correct, provides a better answer for this. And it just may be that stereotyping occurs for different groups within given societies, and there is no exception for those who are involved with producing media content. Media producers are also embedded in a society that's affected by racial tension, 
and misperceptions, and this reality translates into media production that may, in and of itself, reinforce that stereotyping or directly influence racial perceptions in a negative manner. Research has also indicated that uh, media coverage of incidents of police brutality can shape viewer perceptions. In the last 25 years, researchers have found that people's confidence in the police decreases significantly following a highly publicized incident of police misconduct. Uh, and interesting to note here, the attitudes of whites tend to rebound much more quickly than the attitudes of minorities. In 1997, Researchers Levin and Thomas conducted an experiment to examine how exposure to the use of excessive force by police affected people's views of the police. In the experiment, participants viewed a videotape of a violent arrest of an African-American suspect by two police officers. Throughout the experiment, the videotape remained the same with one exception, the race of the arresting officers. The authors found that participants' assessments of the officer's use of excessive force was linked to the race of the officer. Specifically, both black and white respondents believed the arresting officers used excessive force when they viewed the videotape with the white police officers. In 2006, uh, Chermack, McGarrell, and Grunewald Guys, if you're listening to this, I sure hope I got your name right. Yeah, that's another reason we often say researchers is because we don't want to butcher people's names. Yeah, we try. We do try. Um, anyway, these, these three conducted a two-wave public opinion survey before and after an incident of police misconduct in Indianapolis, Indiana. They found that media coverage of high-profile instances of police misconduct significantly influences citizens' evaluations of the guilt of the law enforcement officers involved in the incident. That is to say, they discovered that people with more exposures to news coverage of the incident were more likely to view the officers involved as guilty. Right. And, and the key factor in this theory, in this part of this theory, is the idea of a story frame. You can think of story frames as kind of like archetypes. They're the lenses through which the information is presented. And they draw on common themes to associate the new information with something that the consumer already understands. So it gives them the tools that they need to process the story. Some of the common frames for stories concerning law enforcement are law and order, or presenting the story in a way that highlights the disorder caused by crime and the restoration of order by the law enforcement officers. Or there's the frame of race that highlights the race or ethnicity of the parties involved, especially when they are different. Uh, there's also the lens of police brutality, where it presents the actions taken by the officers as excessive or brutal. These different frames influence the way that news consumers perceive the events that are presented. And at any given time, more than one frame can be used to present the same story. So in the case of the coverage about the death of George Floyd, both the race and the police brutality frames were used to present the story. In the case of Trayvon Martin, you see the law and order frame and the race frame both presented. A 2017 study tested that power of framing on public perception of events and people by examining news coverage of the altercation between a black female college professor 
and a white male campus police officer in 2014. And then they used that information to conduct an experiment that tested how framing changes the public perception of an event. Their findings confirmed the ideas that we were just talking about a few minutes ago. When the story was presented using a law and order frame, where disorder and disruption were highlighted, the fact that this uh, professor was walking in the middle of the street and that she was causing some sort of a commotion, the police officer was viewed more favorably and his actions were more justifiable. However, when the story was presented with a police brutality frame, the officer was viewed less favorably and his actions deemed more excessive. And I would challenge you, listener, as you are consuming news from any source, conservative, liberal, uh, in the middle, presented through peer-reviewed research, anytime you encounter a news story, look for the frames, but also note your own personal frames too, because those influence how you interact with news coverage as well. So if you as an individual tend to value a law and order perspective, you're going to be more receptive to that theme when it's presented by the media. And you're also going to see more discordance with something like a police brutality theme when it's presented in the media. If you have a predisposition to believe that Black Americans are more likely to perpetuate crimes, you're going to be more receptive to that racial framing when it's presented to you. Uh, But also if your frame reflects that idea that there is a systemic problem having to do with race in law enforcement, you're going to be more receptive to that police brutality frame as well. We have mentioned a couple of times our own blind spots, um, our own biases. This is not something that's easy to do. And it's something that you have to practice consciously. And Robin and I fail at this. And if you don't agree with the frame that we have uh, when you listen to this podcast, you will disagree with us. And that is despite our best efforts to, to tone down our own preconceived notions, our own biases, our own frame. And we are trying, believe it or not. Um, oh, yeah. It, it's as we, the whole time we've been doing this, and really my, ever since I was, ever since I was, I joined the Secret Service and went through training, you know, I've had this mental framework available to me of a law enforcement officer. I, you know, was certified to it, to keep the peace, if you will. I took the oath. I wore the badge. I could arrest people. I could write tickets if I really wanted to. <laughs> I never did because I never really wanted to. <laughs> but all this to say that I went through the training and I did get that perspective. And I am fortunate that I have the ability to turn that on and look at something. I don't keep it on. And most people, I think, don't recognize that they have a frame on at all times. And when you don't recognize that, it's hard to distance yourself from that framework and really analyze what you're reading. So as we go through all of this, I've been, take the George Floyd uh, incident from a strictly police frame, from what I was trained, from what I learned about how the law works, from all of the 
foundation that was built while I was in training, there is up to a point in that incident, there is a way to justify the actions of the police officers legally. And I, I know this and I know the law says this and I can see that framework. If I didn't, if I wasn't aware of that own bias, which I didn't used to be, I didn't used to know that I had this bias, like especially right out of training, it's, it's, you can't, it's hard to tell how well they did at building that own, that bias in you. So right out of training, I probably would have been with the crowds of people saying that the police officers didn't do the right thing, but also shouldn't be held accountable in the same way that I, I think they should be held accountable now. Kind of a cop-out answer. I don't know exactly how I would feel at the time. It's hard to look back. But if you can recognize these frames, if you can recognize these frames exist, it is much easier to have a discussion with somebody who doesn't have the same frame that you do, which is how I use my police framework now. How I use that framework is to look at it the way I would if I were a police officer and break it down from there. All of this to say, this should be sobering if you're listening to this. This should be information that you think about a lot. It was for me when I had this realization. I'm sure it was for Robin. It reinforces yet again that you cannot just rely on headlines from major news outlets. You cannot rely on Facebook or Twitter or whatever meme that comes across your dashboard to give you an accurate understanding of newsworthy events. And you should be especially cautious if whatever you're looking at makes you go, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Because confirmation bias is insidious and terrible. You've got to read, you've got to learn, you have to understand the event and the context and look for framing that is designed to appeal to your subconscious values. While coverage can influence public perception of how people of color interact with institutions, none of this research, at least what we found, can be said to confirm the argument that systemic racism is a myth manufactured by the news media. Especially, it will not confirm that it is manufactured to drive division and support liberal political agendas. Media coverage can't account for the significant statistical disparities for BIPOC when it comes to income, healthcare, education, and interactions with the criminal justice system. Remember, many of the roots of systemic problems originate in a time before media coverage was so ubiquitous, before the 24-7 news cycle, before it was so easy to just log on and look stuff up. The real story is readily available in decades worth of demographic information and research across disciplines. Exactly. We can absolutely say that there's evidence that suggests that media coverage frames how we feel about stories about systemic racism, uh, but it just doesn't account. It doesn't account for those disparities. 
All right, let's move on. Let's move on to the idea that racism is perpetuated by individual bad apples and not a system. We're going to talk some more about senators. We're going to shake it out a little bit. We're going to put our most unbiased frame on and we're going to go. Senator John Cornyn from Texas very recently made a clear statement that just really epitomizes this theory in response to, uh, he was speaking with a former Department of Justice official who was making some statements about systemic racism and law enforcement and criminal justice. And he said to her, you lost me when you took the acts of a few misguided, perhaps malicious individuals and described that to all Americans, not just our 800,000 police officers or our 18,000 police departments. Um, this is, again, fundamental misunderstanding of the definition of systemic racism, and then acknowledgement that a few misguided folks did some bad things, uh, but you can't, you can't ascribe that to everybody. Uh, this theory got an exceptional bump in press coverage in the last several days. We're recording on September 13th, 2020, uh, and President Trump was sitting on a panel with two black pastors in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in a discussion that came out of the police shooting of a man named Jacob Blake, who was shot in the back seven times. And they were having this panel discussion on race relations. And these two pastors were asked if they believed that police violence was a systemic issue. And President Trump said, I don't believe that. I think the police do an incredible job. And I think you do have some bad apples. Then Representative Perry, who we talked about earlier, echoed that bad apples talking point recently when he said, you can't throw the whole bushel out because of one bad officer. So here's the problem with this theory. There is pretty much no research that exists that can categorically address the heart condition of all actors within a particular system. So addressing this argument is really, really difficult. You can find some small scale studies out there that try to measure bias on different demographic points in law enforcement officers or in judges in the criminal justice system or in educators. But none of that is comprehensive and it can't give us an idea of whether or not the issue is individual bad apples. So the essence of the argument that Senator Cornyn and President Trump and Representative Perry were making was that most police are good, morally sound people, and only a very small number of them are truly heinous and quote-unquote bad. These bad apples take actions that then get picked up by the media, kind of like the theory we were just talking about, and then trumpeted out to the masses in an effort to discredit the larger police force. Or whatever institution, yeah, is being talked Whatever about. institution it is. Although it is important to note that we do see more media coverage of issues inside of the law enforcement arena than we do in healthcare or education right. or... Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the, the big issue of the time right now, which is why we're seeing that. And it's why we keep defaulting to saying the police force or in law enforcement or something right. like that is... And it is, it's more likely to be a life and death issue Yeah. than, than a teacher who uses a slur or racially biased curriculum. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't understand personally why people like the bad apples explanation. 
I actually kind of find it insulting, especially to police. <laughs> and it's this idea that that police, in this context, what we're talking about, that police are someone who's just generally more racist than, say, a doctor or a lawyer or a plumber or any other person. It just seems so reductive and problematic. And I'm hardly a police apologist any more than I'm a lawyer or plumber apologist. But I know that I've worked with a lot of good, honest men and women in my time in law enforcement, humans, people who would lay down their lives to save another. I know those people. And in part, that, that's why I find it hard to completely write off policing as an institution. To imply that there is something inherent in police officers themselves that is evil, or it's more common in police officers, I just, that idea is not right. Unless I am evil, I suppose. I don't feel evil. I guess nobody evil does. Part of the answer to why people like this lies in psychology, I think. Multiple studies have shown that people are more moral in the abstract than they are in reality. That is to say, when presented with a hypothetical situation, say, would you intervene if you saw a man sexually harassing a woman? The vast majority of people, 95% in one study, immediately say, yes, of course I would, or some variation of that. But when they're faced with those situations, only about 45% of those same people actually did something when it stopped being hypothetical. 55% remain silent in the presence of actual discrimination actual harassment. Humans are very, very bad at gauging certain <laughs> things. <laughs> we are. Uh, like the vast distances in space. Uh, how far away one billion dollars is from one million. Here's a fun fact. All of our listeners are closer to being a millionaire than Jeff Bezos is, or Bezos, or however you pronounce his name. Which is to say, if he lost enough money to take him down to a million dollars, all of our listeners would have to travel less distance to reach a million dollars than he would. Good night. Unless he's listening to this, unless he's one of our listeners, in which case, sup. Maybe fix how you pay your workers and give them real benefits. Okay, thanks, bye. Importantly, we're really bad at judging how we'd react in a given situation. We all like to dream of being the hero in some way. How we are the hero differs for all of us, but we all have those fantasies. Reality often has an incredibly sobering effect on those fantasies. <laughs> it's something I learned pretty quickly in my training. Everyone wants to believe that the police are morally rock solid, including and especially the police. If we can somehow isolate the bad actions taken by police to a select few bad actors, these bad apples, then we can maintain the illusion of police overall being superhuman in their ability to perform in reality the way they feel in the abstract, the way we imagine they should act. If it's a bad apple, if it's one bad officer, then it's an aberration. It's one weak pocket in an otherwise solid foundation. Without 
that explanation, without the bad apple theory, we're forced to face the reality that police officers are human too. And that they are subject to the vagaries of humanity. Things like external pressures, social expectation, the desire to impress subconscious bias, on and on and on. The bad apple explanation does police, police officers, a huge disservice because it puts them up on a pedestal. As soon as they make a bad decision, a human mistake, they lose their pedestal, they become spoiled goods. You're either a good cop or you're a bad cop. It reduces the entirety of the human condition to a duality. The explanation does not only expect cops to be perfect, but it assumes that they are. If the Bad Apple's framework, in that framework rather, police aren't allowed to err, or else they clearly aren't worthy of wearing the badge. You mess up, you're a Bad Apple. In a world, in a career, where your error can be and often is life and death, the additional pressure does not lead to a great environment in which to make decisions. The irony here being, of course, that so many police I know complain about being expected to be perfect on the job at all times and how much pressure that puts on them. I've heard it from the people wearing the badge, from the people with the gun on their hip. I've heard it in person while I was on duty, how we can't screw up. We have to get it right. And honestly, I kind of like that. I kind of like that you can't screw up. But you can't have that feeling in the context of if I screw up, it's my whole career and somebody else's whole life that I've ruined. It's too much. It doesn't create a great environment for making sound decisions. And in fact, what I hypothesize happens is that police often start to shoehorn events into specific holes, into specific pegs where they know how to act instead of approaching every situation differently, which is why you see disproportionate use of force actions for things that don't require it. Because instead of seeing a little kid with something in his hand, they see a human with what might be a gun in their hand. And when you start thinking like that, which you are trained to think like, then, well, when you're a hammer, every problem is a nail. The irony there, if you are a police officer who ascribes to this, this bad apples mentality, if you are blaming organizations like Black Lives Matter or the ACLU or whatever for creating this expectation, this assumption of perfection, you need to realize and accept that you are the one holding that standard of perfection up. You are the one who is saying, it's just a bad apple. I wouldn't do that because I would have done something better in that situation because I think better or I act better because I am morally superior. As long as you think that, as long as anybody thinks that, we will never be able to have a fruitful discussion on how to make things better, not only for our citizens, but for our police as well. And the same holds true for those of you listening who 
love a law enforcement officer. You have a law enforcement officer in your life and you feel compelled to make the statement, not my officer. I know there are bad cops out there, but mine would never. Mine stands up for. Please know that your law enforcement officer is as human as any other law enforcement officer. And the fallacies in their decision making are as real as anyone else's, as yours, as mine. And you also are contributing to that standard of perfection. Because then not only is the public holding them to that high standard, but the people that they value the most are holding them to that high standard. And there is no room for them to make or acknowledge a mistake without losing that perception, possibly in your eyes. Like, please create a space where your law enforcement officer, your teacher, your judge, your healthcare worker is able to acknowledge and accept that they also make mistakes because that accountability and moving forward is what's going to allow us to make those systems better and more equitable for all people. You've got to recall that, that old phrase, a few bad apples spoil the whole bunch. According to a database maintained by the Washington Post, only 110 officers nationwide have been charged with murder or manslaughter in an on-duty shooting, despite the fact that around 1,000 people are fatally shot by police every single year, regardless of race. 1,000 people die at the hands of police annually. And in those fatal shootings, only one in five on average are ever even named are ever even associated with the situation that took the life of another human being. And so to that end, if we have a system that allows a few bad apples not only to enter, but to retain their position and their authority and their capacity to act even after they make these significant life-costing mistakes, we automatically have a systemic issue. One bad apple becomes a bad system because it tolerates bad apples functioning inside of it without correction. And even worse, it's a system that's aware of those issues and chooses to ignore and silence them. You know, this works both ways. Something I was thinking of is often the same people who say that the the police officers who messed up were bad apples will turn around and associate an entire protest with the <laughs> people who burned down a store. An yeah. entire movement with one event in one protest and ignore the 93% of other protests that were perfectly fine. It works both ways. If you're going to claim bad apples, which God don't, please, but if you're going to, understand that you have to apply that to everybody. Right. It's an equal defense and an equal indictment. Yep. It is an equal indictment. Because if we, in our social movements, tolerate those who cause violence and harm to others, and we're unwilling to accept bad apples as a defense in criminal justice and in education, it's not a defense in a social movement either. 
Well, that got heavy real fast. Oh, yeah. We love the road to heavy. It's well-worn. We travel it quick. Yes. <clears throat> okay. Let's talk about the theory that socioeconomic status is the issue when it comes to these systemic problems and not race. I, you know, I genuinely believe and research seems to agree that this is the most likely alternative explanation to the systemic issues that people of color experience. The distinction between the two ideas, though, is really, really hard to tease out in the practical. Mm. Why? Because so many black and indigenous people of color find themselves in negative interactions with the system are also economically disadvantaged. Throughout the series, we've covered some really heavy statistics about the coincidence of race and socioeconomic status, uh, but a lot of the complication of this theory can be illustrated by a few factors. So according to 2016 data, the average wealth of white families in America was $919,000. Remember that wealth is not income. Wealth is income, assets, inheritance, that kind of thing. The average wealth of black families was $140,000. For Hispanic families, that number was a little bit higher at $192,000. And that wealth gap grows with age. So in their 30s, white Americans have on average three times the wealth of black Americans. But by retirement age, that number grows up to that seven times higher. So basically what that indicates is that white Americans are able to participate in more of the activities like saving for retirement, like buying real estate, like investing in the stock market that contribute to future wealth growth than black families are able to do. Uh, we know also that the median income, I couldn't find uh, the wealth number for Native American families in a, a reasonable time frame, but we do know that the income for Native American families lags significantly behind the median incomes of whites and other ethnicities. <laughs> So when someone's lived experience reflects two intersectional factors of potential disadvantage, it can be really, really difficult to determine which is the most significant factor in their disadvantage at any given time. Uh, but we do know that access to wealth is a determining factor in access to education, in access to healthcare, in access to household mobility and security, in the perpetuation of crime in the ability to defend oneself in cases of interaction with the criminal justice system. So yeah, it's entirely possible that poverty can take the blame for many of the systemic issues that we see with people of color. But we also have to remember that it was these racist ideas and policies that created the conditions of poverty that we now see in communities of color. So while you cannot ignore the fact that poverty is a heavy factor here, we also cannot exclude racialization from the discourse. Those two are just intertwined in American society, and you cannot functionally separate them at this point in where we are. The topic of systemic racism, especially when we focus on policing, but just in every facet, in every aspect, it's a very sore subject for many Americans, and if I had to guess, many people around the world who live in a, a heterogeneous society like we do, which everybody does. There are, there are those who would like to lay the blame for so many things 
at the feet of systemic racism, and there are compelling arguments to support those feelings. And there are others that would and do go to great lengths to find any other explanation for things. Unfortunately, these explanations almost all fall short of asking why do these disparities exist? Why are people of color more likely to be socioeconomically disadvantaged? Why does the media more frequently leave out the names of black people in their headlines? Why? And when we really get down to it, it is my belief, and I want to make this very clear, this is something I believe, but I think it is backed up by the preceding however many hours we've talked about this at this point. We're crossing the two-hour mark. And the other, the other four episodes that we've done on this, it just, it seems almost... It seems almost willfully ignorant, if not malicious, to say that systemic racism does not play a role in these different problems. I think I have managed to completely eschew any claim of being non-biased <laughs> at this point. Um... <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to re-record the episode, though, so... No. Nope. It's just... No. Nope. I... You know, some of these ex explanations actually probably do play a role, in part. You know, I, life is hard. It's complicated, and everything is woven together, and there's almost never a single explanation for anything. So, yeah. There's probably some fault in the media. There's... Probably bad apples in whatever, although I don't think that's accurate to say. There are people who act maliciously that make things worse in a system. Um, there are... There are many, many, many factors that cause problems. But to say... To, to stick your head in the stand and say, despite the evidence... Systemic racism doesn't exist. It's just drivel. It's just collectivist nonsense. It's just groupthink. Is denying yourself and our, our our is denying yourself and our society the opportunity to grow and to resolve these issues and to become better. As as we're talking about these theories and as you're considering and hopefully as you're looking at frames of things that are being presented to you in the future, it would really challenge you to ask yourself, number one, why might this be the case? And number two, what action do I need to take in light of this information? Those are two really, really key takeaways because it's my personal belief that many of these other arguments are touted and used to justify some level of inaction. If I can find a reason that this disparity is just, then I am excused 
from taking action to correct it. If America is a meritocracy and people who are poor are poor because they didn't try hard enough, then if I am not poor, I don't have to do anything because I earned everything that I got. If there are only a few bad apples inside of these systems and we can correct the problem by weeding them out, then I don't have to take any action to correct a system because I'm not responsible for those bad apples. Really take the time to think as you're going forward and you are entering into these conversations about systemic racism, what action can you take or what action are you justifying not taking as you make your case? Good news. Well, let's do some good news. We will here in a second. I got one more thing to say. It's very important. Oh, yeah. One more rant. No, it's not a rant. I promise. Uh, okay. If you would like to do any further reading on these subjects, we have a couple of books that I think we'd like to list on the actual podcast this time around. First, the book coming out on the 15th, The Tyranny of Merit by Michael J. Sandel. I am, I already pre-ordered it, not going to lie. Don't get paid to say this. I'm just very much looking forward to reading a, a deeper conversation about uh, meritocracy and the pitfalls it pre presents. I would also recommend a book called Chokehold by Paul Butler. It walks through some of the uh, problems that we face and it does discuss in part some of the uh, alternate explanations that people have for systemic racism. Things like um, that it's a culture problem, the, the, the problem is, is black men, for example. It's an under enforcement of law, not over enforcement. Talks about why black officers tend to be tougher in their neighborhoods than white officers are. The relationship between black people and cops. And then uh, it discusses white supremacy as well. So I'm going to read that one here soon. I just want to say thank you very much for all the feedback that we got. We got actually... Uh, some help for this episode, which we are appreciative of. We are eagerly looking forward to any emails we will receive and the ones that we have. Thank you uh, to our listeners. Uh, a lot of you from Canada, I've noticed lately, which, hello, have some poutine for me. I miss it. Thank you. If you like what you hear, if you have benefited from this in any way, if it has helped you understand whatever issue is you know foremost in your mind please leave us a review uh, itunes or whatever platform you listen on uh, i was going to make a list but i just realized i don't know what all platforms allow reviews so <laughs> you got itunes and then everybody else yes we have a yeah, easy link to Follow. It's just uh, ratethispodcast.com slash fireside. You will be able to, it will guide you through uh, leaving a review for us. We would, like I said, we would appreciate that very much. Every positive review helps new listeners find us, helps spread uh, the information, uh, helps make our society more thoughtful. I would like to think you can find us on Facebook at Fireside Breakdowns. And did I leave anything out, Robin? Email. Oh, email. Firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. Now, 
let's get to that good news. Yes. Okay, so Navajo Power and uh, the Public Benefit Corporation and Zero Mass Water, an Arizona-based manufacturer of source hydro panel technology, have given and installed an initial 15 rapid access clean water systems to Navajo households. Uh, it's really cool. What these panels do is they look a little bit like solar panels, but they draw moisture out of the air and they filter it and they process it into potable water. Uh, this program was funded through a grant and these panels could provide a rapid access solution for those across the Navajo Nation and potentially throughout the world who lack access to clean water. These panels can produce four to 10 liters of water every single day, and they have 60 liters of storage capacity. Uh, these groups are currently assessing a plan to use CARES Act funding uh, that was designed to provide relief to Americans in the wake of the uh, coronavirus pandemic to roll out this solution to thousands of families across the Navajo Nation who are ex experiencing a significant lack of access to clean, potable water especially during this pandemic time. That is awesome. Thank you all very much for listening. We will be back in two weeks. Until then, take care of yourself. Mm -hmm.